so I am thrilled to welcome our guest, Bridget Greenwood. She's an accomplished and dynamic leader in the field of Web3. She's the founder of The Bigger Pie, which is an organization that supports exceptional women in fintech and Web3. And she's the co-founder of the 200 Billion Club, which aims to combat the lack of funding for female and underrepresented founders. Under Bridget's leadership, The Bigger Pie has grown to support a network of over 10,000 women globally and has fostered multiple other women-focused communities. In 2022, Bridget and her co-founder, Dr. Amber Goddard, successfully launched the 200 Billion Club, and that saw the graduation of eight startups, 75% with term sheets, and an average raise of 1.7 million. The program now boasts over 200 VC partners and will be kicking off a brand new Web3 cohort this year. Bridget's also the driving force behind the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging playbook for Web3. It's a joint venture with between the Bigger Pie, Berkeley, and supported by Ripple, where they aim to create DEIB tools for organizations and leaders in Web3. Bridget has received numerous awards and accolades, including the Ethical Finance Awards winner, Cryptocurrency Diversity and Inclusion Organization of the Year 2022, European Women in Finance 2022, and Top 100 Women of the Future. So amazing, amazing, impressive background, Bridget, and I'm really, really happy to have you here today. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. So to kind of dive in, I would love to understand a little bit more about your journey in Web3. How did you get into the space? What initially sparked your interest? So BC, which is before child, I used to be an independent financial advisor. So I was working in the financial space. I was helping retail clients with their everyday finances. Unfortunately, when I had my son, and this is back in 2004. My son is 18 now, if we can believe it. <laughs> I had hoped to go back to work part-time, but I wasn't able to do that for a variety of reasons. And it was about the second or third time that my gender had massively impacted in my career progression. Effectively, whilst I was on my maternity break, the directors of the company said, we want people who can write high levels of it, volumes of business, and we're going to take a high amount of your your." earnings unless you hit certain thresholds. So there was no wiggle room for me in those news policies as someone who wanted to return to work part-time. That was one of the reasons. Now, I will say, I'm sure had I been in the room to represent my needs, because I was the only female financial advisor at the firm and said, what about those of us who are who want to return to work on a pro rata basis? They possibly would have accommodated it. But it was a really good lesson in understanding why we have to have diverse needs represented in boardrooms because, you know, even without that, you know, without that, then, then we can be doing harm to, to our workforce. So I'd always had an interest in finance. I was a single mom by the stage. And so I had to figure out how to work and be around and, and have as much time to be the parent that I wanted to, to, to do as well. So I just started making stuff up as I went along, if I'm perfectly honest with you, because where I lived, it wasn't near a city where there was much employability opportunity. You had to sort of create your own. And that's when I discovered I did really well with social media. This is way back in the day when social media was 
something that was very much about organic traffic. We didn't have the huge conglomerates that we do now. We didn't have the analytics and the and the and the, the, the implications that we've seen with Cambridge Analytica, with influencing the mental health attitudes. None of those. It, it was still had this opportunity to democratize <laughs> knowledge and education. Yeah. And so I. So I put those two things together, my understanding of work in the financial services and my understanding of social media together. And I offered that, you know, basically I had a company called Financial Social Media, which literally did what it said on the tin. And that was quite interesting mm-hmm. because in, in those days, the regulator said, we don't understand what it is. We don't know how to regulate it. The financial services companies were saying, we don't understand what it is. We don't understand it's reputation. None of our clients will want to use social media. This is a reputational risk. This is a regulatory risk. And we'll just shut down anyone to be able to use these social media sites, you know, through the, through, um, during work time. And obviously today, if anyone says we're going to have no digital marketing asset, asset plan, everyone would think that you're crazy. So, and I mentioned that because it's part Thank of you. my sort of Web3 journey. <laughs> So then in 2015, 2016, people started mentioning Bitcoin to me. I was really interested in Bitcoin, looking at it from the lens of after the 2008 literally man-made financial crisis, it was a good idea that maybe we had an economic system that we could also be in so that when these centralized banks, organizations failed us, then you know, not, not all of our assets would necessarily be wrapped up into this into this one system. So that's how I got into sort of Bitcoin. But I still couldn't figure out how to get hold of it, how to buy it. Certainly wasn't going to be looking at how to mine it because unfortunately I don't have a technical background. And I say unfortunate just because, you know, when you look at the future of everything, coding is almost like, you know, being able to speak a language and without that skill going into the future. I mean, I feel frustrated that I don't have that language. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so I couldn't figure it out. And a friend of mine eventually said, look, Richard, send me some money, download this wallet, I'll send you the equivalent of BTC. And um, there we go. So that's how I got hold of my first first amount. And he also said, would you like to join me in my startup? So at that time, social media had become a bit more of a beast. It wasn't heading in the direction I wanted to. I was much more interested in being part of an emerging tech that I saw that had promise and that was exciting. And then, so that's when I came into, into the space full time in 2017. Amazing. Well, that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting journey and obviously sort of seeing the businesses that you've subsequently gone on to, to found. I'd love to share more with the listeners the bigger pie. So what is your vision for that organization and, and how did that sort of follow on from your intro into the industry? So it became clear to me that once I came down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, everyone seems to have a rabbit hole that they've come down. It was apparent that ledger technology has the opportunity to transform every industry, not just the financial sector, but across every country, every industry. When we look at what historically has happened, then women have been left out of technical waves. Women have been left out of the financial transference that goes on with these waves. And if you look around the world right now, I don't know what score out of 10 that you would give the world right now, but for me, it's below five. You know, I think that there are an awful lot of systems that we have built 
with hindsight, we would have built them differently. And now with this new technology that's going to cover every industry, every sector, we have the ability to be able to say, what is important to us? Where do we want to put value to and from? Who do we want involved in it? Because we can do this with these micropayments that the technology allows us to do. But no one's going to build that unless you have women at the design development deployment table. So we need everyone building using this new tech. Otherwise, there's going to be nothing innovative about it. It's going to be built by a few for a few which is, you know, where we've been before. So I saw that the women in the space are incredible. They speak multiple languages. They have multiple degrees. This is back in 2017, 2018, my first crypto winter. They had career histories that anyone would be super proud of. And then they had a vision of what they thought this technology could do and how they wanted to build to shape a, a really exciting and different and better future for everyone. So how do you look around? The women are amazing, but there's not enough of them. And I said, you know, you clearly are incredibly competent, fantastic people. But as a woman in the sector, do you want extra support? Because there are so few of you. And the answer was 100% yes. The overwhelming answer was yes, we do. We would really like to be able to connect much more with other women in the sector. We're talking at conferences and so for the legal system, then we get to meet other women who are in the legal system, but we don't get to meet up with developers. We don't get to meet up with founders. You know, we're very much stuck in, in the sector that we're in. So that was one of the things. So I decided that I would put together the bigger pie. It was to support the incredible women who are in the space, make sure that we have role models, visibility, connections, networking, resources, and then they could be the shining light to attract more women into in, in, into Web3, as we call it now, blockchain, crypto, DeFi, whatever, whatever, whatever it has been for you to come in. Yeah. So that's really what the bigger pie is about. And then in that time, role models are so important. It's the biggest understatement, you know, of, of many things. The, the, the crucial need for role, mo- role models, for people to be able to see themselves in a sector and think, oh, that might be for me, or I could do that, or oh, how interesting someone else is doing something in a similar space. It, it's inc- incredibly powerful. And when you don't have it, you know, when, I, I, think about, I think about men and I think about white men in particular, and I think, where would you look and never have a role model? How can you have any idea what it feels like when you look into business, politics, science, billionaires, you know, religion, whatever it might be, you have a plethora of those role models. And I remember how important it was to me when I was seven, I looked up a couple of times in the world and the person running the country was female and the person running the Commonwealth was female. And I kind of just put my head back down and went, awesome, so I can achieve anything, you know, and carried on being a seven-year-old. But then later on that year, my father was working out in Iran and it was the Iranian revolution where we saw... Women who in Iran used to have a much more Western life, who were doctors, who were incredible women across all disciplines, suddenly have those rights taken away from them. So as much as on one hand, I saw that we you know we had the possibility to, to go anywhere. I also saw, on the other hand, that, you know, you can't take anything, anything for granted. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that I see the incredible women, women around us have opportunity to excel in the same way that the male counterparts do. 
Yeah, I mean, so much of what you said really resonates. And, you know, you're obviously helping and, and kind of supporting women in Web3 in a number of different ways. I was just down at Consensus in Austin last week, and I had a lot of conversations with women founders. And there's not, that, there wasn't that many of them, right? So that's, that's kind of the, is the, is the first thing is you can't have a sort of that, diversity of thought at an industry level when you've got such a stark contrast between the people who run and essentially hold the balance of of power within, you know, these these sort of organizations. And so I actually was really socializing our session and and kind of said, you know, I I have I'm gonna be having a really great conversation with with Bridget Greenwood and we're going to talk about that funding gap. And there was so much animation around this topic because, you know, some of these women really struggling to get funding Mm. and some of them had gotten funding but felt like they had to really run across hot coals to to be able to put themselves in in that position. And I heard you talk some real truths around this at the conference in, in D.C., Can you share with the listeners a little bit about that funding gap and more specifically the bias that is in the process and the questions that you feel really kind of feeds into that? Absolutely. So in terms of making sure we have role models, if you think about the most famous tech entrepreneurs, you know, they are your Gates and your Bezos and your your Jobs who were founder CEOs and who famously sort of dropped out of college scenarios, started off in a garage and clearly got funding to be able to take themselves to the next stages. Well, women only get 3% of VC funding pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Globally, women get now less than 2% of all VC funding. So that's female-only teams. If it's a mixed team, it's around 8%. And the other pretty much 90% goes to all male teams. This is not because that's the pipeline of founders. However, it is the pipeline of VC-backed founders, right? So 82% of all VC-backed startups come from a warm introduction. So there are certain things that you need to be able to do to get into this specific club. So on on my journey in the bigger pie, I realized that we need to be able to invest more into the founders, into these brilliant women who are visionary, who are more more than capable and who want to build a new future. So I got together with Dr. Amber Gadar. You mentioned her in the introduction. And she's fantastic. She's one of these women that I mentioned in, in Web3 that you'll all come across, you know, multiple languages, multiple degrees. And so she had exited her very successful career in structured finance, started her entrepreneurial journey in 20, 2018, and couldn't understand why her male counterparts were writing checks, getting checks written for them from VCs at a faster amount and with larger sums. So that's when I explained to her the bias that happens across the VC world, but also, you know, in, in, in every aspect of our lives. And then she successfully raised, she's then sort of done a soft exit and said, Bridget, we need to make this journey much easier for female founders. So we went down our three-month journey of doing research, speaking, you know, looking at other research that's out there, speaking with other founders, VCs, et cetera, et cetera. And then we decided there were two main pain points that we could do something about to, to, to redress this imbalance. And so the stat of 82% of all VC-backed firms coming from a warm introduction is a key part of it. 
you are 13 times more likely to get to the investment committee. 13, that's like 1,300% more chance, right? Of getting to the investment committee, which unless you get there, you're never going to get any funding. With a warm introduction. And, yeah. and traditionally and historically, most of the, the people who write the checks are men. And so it's about opening up that boys network to female founders and to underrepresented founders. So the good news is threefold. One, we now have, as you said, 200 plus VC partners in our network who are looking for pre-vetted deal flow from fantastic founders that they don't usually get access to, which are the women in our cohort and the underrepresented founders in our cohort. Two, we are seeing more programs to be able to attract VCs that have a diverse background that represents more the diversity of the founders that are out there across the world, because it's much more easy to invest in someone who you can see yourself in than it is, you know, when that's not the case. If you speak to me about a gender-specific problem, it might be half the population, but if it's not my gender and I can't relate to it, then it's going to be harder to sell to me than something where I go, you know, I face that almost every day. You know, so it's very important that the people we're pitching to have a depth of experience in the same way that the founders are pitching them to. So one, we have our VC partners, which are always broadening. So anyone who's a VC who's listening, who wants great pre-vetted deal flow, please let us know. Two, we're seeing more uh, more VC programs, having, having that and as a result, we're also seeing different ways for people to, to raise funds. So one, let's make sure that we can get you the warm introduction. Two, which is a bit more difficult yep. to solve, is in the pitching process. So as soon as you start pitching and we're all exposed to the same media stereotypes, we all see the same politics, the same people in business. So all of us, male and female, are exposed to the same biases that feed our unconscious bias to more or less degrees. And and there was interesting research that basically said when you're pitching as a female founder, immediately they switch to preventive questions. So a preventive question is all about the risk and it's about you defending your startup, what you've done, how you've achieved it, where you're at, how you're going to do the next stage, what you're going to do with the money. And this is whether you're a male or a female VC fell into this this, this bias trap of asking preventive questions. If you are a man, you're most likely to be asked promoter questions. And this means you're asked about the opportunity and the growth of your startup and what you're going to do next. And why is that important? Because those who are asked promoter questions raise five times more than those who are asked preventive questions. So we've already got 13 times getting to investment committee. And now just by the framing of the questions, you know, 500% more likely to, to, to raise based on, on questions you're asked. So we have good news. The good news is if you can recognize a preventive question and answer in a promotive way, you can bypass that bias to put yourself back on an even keel. So part of the accelerator program that we do is obviously you, everyone, no matter whether they're male or female. And I will say, you know, you mentioned that some of the women felt like they were being dragged over hot coals. Any founder who's raising particularly a first time raise feels that way. It is a very difficult process. It is a, it's a full-time job in itself when you're trying to bootstrap your startup. And if the journey takes too long, they're like, well, what have you achieved in the last six months? Well, <laughs> you know, I was full-time trying to raise whilst bootstrapping on something that, we, that we've that we gotten product market fit on. We've got the other, but until we get an injection in cash, 
then, you know, how, how can we do that, that, that next leapfrog and that next big, big key milestone that, that we're all looking for? So it is a very difficult process. And, and then, so we help them understanding what to tell a VC, what that journey looks like, but also how to position yourself, the language that you need to use as a woman, because do, women do use more diminutive language. So they might, one could definitely argue they're more realistic. But when you say, I hope, I think, I believe versus I will, I am, you know, that message just comes across and not as, in, not as convincing. So there's lots of things that we do yeah. to say, get your product market fit, you'll go to market, but also here's the key language. And then we've noticed that when we, they've got the pitch down, that's great. But when they start to be asked questions, promotive or preventive, they'll start to use a diminishing language again. So it's really going through and coaching them that they have all their answers, you know, ready and that they can continue in this, in this promotive, strong context. Because the other research shows that VCs are looking for male leadership skills, which is more about being competitive and, you know, win at all costs and, and being overly confident, really. So as much as you want to work with a VC that understands who you are and what you are, when you're pitching, you just really want to make sure that you can turn on the right language to be successful. Because without funding, you can't build your company. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I love about everything you just kind of shared there is there's some self-knowledge that you're kind of offering to women who are in that situation, but also some giving a little bit of power back as well in terms of this is what you can do to better position yourself, you know, and it, in kind of going into to these pictures and, and kind of going mm. into this situation. What advice would you have for the men that are writing the checks? So how can they ensure that there is more fairness and equity in the process based on what is in their control, which is a lot? So they should have girls. I'm, I'm half joking, but men who have daughters are much more conscious and aware of how the world operates in a way that it doesn't support women, the men without daughters. So, mm. yes, please go off and have daughters. The other thing is, <laughs> the, the other thing is, make sure that you can put into position. So have people sat around the table who are helping you decide whether or not you should write a cheque that come from a diverse background. Okay. So if you, you know, you've, you've got your lived experience, that's all you've got. So bring people into the decision-making process that allow you to see more opportunity that you're blind to because you don't understand what those problem areas are. And therefore you don't have as much of an idea how lucrative they are because we're human. We have biases. So recognize where you can play to your strengths and then bring in other people who can play to the strengths, you know, that they have to give you a better access to understanding deal flow opportunity. Secondly, put in a, a design practice that makes sure that you look as much on data points as possible. Now, when it's early stage investors investing, the, the, the data points aren't so strong. A lot of people are just saying, look, whatever idea you have right now in that sector, we know that you're kind of going to go there, but you're going to pivot so much. And, the, and you're so early stage that really we just have to believe in the founding team. So it's less data driven. But what they can do is they can say, okay, make sure that when we do our startup, the pitch is a startup. Sorry, the pitch, the startups are pitching to us, get there eventually. 
that we are balanced in how many preventive and promotive questions we ask, regardless of the gender of the team. And just do some record keeping and just do some, Mm -hmm. you know, some analytics of what you're doing and then report on them. You know, show people that you do care, Mm -hmm. that you're not all talk and that this is where you're at and this is where you'd like to go to. By signaling things like that, you'll get more deal flow come to you as well. And new bills are assessed. How common practice is that? Yeah, how common practice is that, Bridget? The, the the sort of structure and discipline that you just described, even around let's make sure we're asking the right type, types of balance of questions, whether we've got a man in front of us or a woman that's that's kind mm. of pitching. How common is that level of discipline amongst feces? I would say not very common at all. And so those VCs who are doing something and have something in play, then we would love to hear from you. The VCs that we've spoken to, some of them make conscious decisions. I don't know whether, you know, and and they're looking at doing female office hours for, for female founders. They're looking at making sure they've got the right language that's going on. So I know a lot of VCs are doing a lot of work, but when it comes to the, are we looking at the preventive questions versus promoted questions? How are we managing that? Are we making sure that it's not just the pipeline that we're bringing in that has more analytically correct numbers, but once they're in that pipeline of that process, is treating them as fairly as, or as, yeah, as fairly as possible? And what do we mean by fairly? Like, like for like. So I, yeah. I, I, I'm seeing, again, more, more activity in that space, but we, I think we're at the beginning of that journey. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, I would also love to hear a little bit about the playbook that you are creating, which sounds really genuinely quite game changing. Can you share a bit around that? Absolutely. So everything that we've spoken about and so much more in terms of if you think about the history of crypto and and, and Web3, it's finances and tech that came together. Finances is typically male dominated. Tech is typically male dominated. And if if you look at the language that is still around it, it is not an everyday language. So it was all done by word of mouth, mostly from a male-dominated industry. And that's where we started from. So we're still very much in that position. So the language that you use, how do you attract people? How do you retain people into that culture? Particularly when you're looking at it through a gendered lens. How do we make sure that we're finding those founders, nurturing them, bringing them into incubators, graduating them through accelerators, making sure they get access to funding, um, bringing incredible women from Web2 knowledge that doesn't necessarily have to have a technical background, but can build a sustainable business and have all of those skill sets that you need. It's not just about how do you code. It's about how do you grow the team? How do you you know, sell your wares? How do you make sure that you've got all that responsibility in place and compliance and, and, and checks so that we don't see businesses not being sustainable. And by sustainable, we mean financially, let alone any sort of ESG goal added added onto that. So the way that Web3 has started, it's mostly startups. They don't have human resources departments. We've built very much and grown in the DeFi time during remote working. And we have DAOs, we have different ways of doing things. So there's no blueprint to say, actually, For those of us who do care about it, who want access to the best talent globally, who want to make sure that when we do find them, we can hold on to them, nurture them and and really have a much more successful business. What does that look like? And what does that look like when I'm also trying to build a startup in a very competitive world? You know, let's be fair, you don't have time to do both. So the playbook 
was was kicked off with, with UC Berkeley and thank you very much to, to Ripple as well for funding us in the, the initial kickoff that we're doing. But what we want to do is work with universities across the globe on different disciplines, whether it's in the startup ecosystem, whether it's in partnerships, whether it's hiring, retaining, education. You know, there are so many factors across all of Web3 that we can look into and back academic research up with best practices, create this playbook that we can, you know, share with the industry and then turn that into a, into a SaaS model so that people can plug in the elements that are relevant to them into their business, into their practices. And we can have these designs like we spoke about the VCs when they are having a look at, are they asking the same amount of preventive and promotive questions to the male founders they are to the female founders? You know, those sorts of things can just be plugged into your design practices and principles. I think that's incredible. And and when I look at the space, it is there's so much innovation and, and so many in- incredibly talented people that have, have, you know, you can sort of see why they have been able to achieve the, the sort of growth within the organizations that they have. But there's definitely at times it feels like an absence of kind of the adults in the room, right? And mm-hmm. so coming from some of the some different industries where I've been in the talent space for a long time and, and in the diversity space, that this is just so much more in the fabric of the organizations, right? So they care yeah. about it and they have a plan around it. Well, and they're more mature. I, you know, when, As an organization, yeah, exactly. they have that maturity on and, their side. Exactly. And so I, I think what you're kind of describing now is potentially a really incredible accelerant for, you know, organizations that their heart's there, but they don't know exactly how to, to, yeah. to sort of execute. And the other challenge is, is, is those organizations maybe where the heart isn't there because they don't understand why, you know, like why it should be something that they care about. Yeah. And, and for me, it's really is a question of, I'm not in the business of convincing people. There are enough people out there. There are enough foundations out there. There are enough ecosystems out there that have seen this, this, this same type of people building on their ecosystems and failing because they're brilliant coders, they're brilliant this, that, and the other, but without that experience of thought and, and human capital around them, to be able to take it to the next level, to be able to be sustainable, to be able to pivot to whatever those things are that they need to do. But we've, we've seen a lot of projects come and go and not seeing businesses built. So there's a, there's, a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of understanding as to why this is important from a critically business point of view, as well as all the other you know, societal reasons and values and, and benefits that there are. So let's work with them. Mm-hmm. Let's give them the tools that they need to yeah. see. Let's see those businesses thrive. Let's see how well that they do. And then as more and more people see thriving businesses, attracting larger customer bases, solving more innovative problems that, that, you know, that more people across the world can see the solution to. And that's the, the you know, proof mm-hmm. in the pudding, whatever the phrase is, it escapes me right now. Yeah, demonstrate the way the for the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> exactly. Let, let, let that be the convincer for anyone else who hasn't yet understood. Yeah, I love it. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for sharing so much knowledge with our listeners. And before we let you go, how can people follow you, get involved with your organizations? Where can we find you? 
Thank you very much. So LinkedIn is my most active social profile, which is not very Web3, I know. But there we go, it is. If you want to come into the Telegram group, then you can go on to the website, www.thebiggerpie.io, and you'll see the community there. We'd love to have you come in. Anyone who is interested in the playbook, I'm really excited to speak to more foundations and more organizations who want to put their money where their mouth is and help us to be able to create this. The academics who want to back it up with, with the research and anyone else who wants to roll their hands up and sort of get down and dirty and into making this really come to light. That would be great to hear from you. And again, on the website, you'll see various ways to get, to get hold of us. Brilliant. And we'll make sure that we include this in the in the show notes. Thank you so um, very much. Thank you so much. I have loved chatting to you. Could have honestly spoke to you for another three hours of Adja. So <laughs> thank you. And to our audience, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jeanette.